Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Beyond the Album Cover, where we get inside the know with those in the entertainment industry and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. Part one was so good, I got to ask Alice Shances to come on and do a part two, aka the remix, as I like to call it. Alex, welcome back to Beyond the Album Cover. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Man, it's not a problem. So how has part one been received by those in your community? Um, so far, everyone who's listened to it really liked it, liked it a lot. It, you know, some of them didn't know about part of my career and like, it's funny cause I've had this very eclectic career that's been compartmentalized and one part may not know about the other part, you know, uh, and a lot of people knew about the tours I did, but then I had all these dance records I did. And then I, for a t long time I did jingles and made money doing that and then you know teaching and doing smaller kind of not so glamorous gigs to make it as a musician to, to pay your bills you got to do just about everything that comes your way so it's this mishmash of things that have come my way yeah so it's all about taking the links and linking them up together so that people can have the full story that is what we try to do here at beyond the album cover now to pick up from where we left off in part one for part two. I want you to talk about a little bit for me, the impact that Michael Jackson and Prince not only had on just R and B music, but pop and the music business in general. Well, um, I, I think there's a couple things we can look at. Um, first is just the, let's just talk about Michael Jackson for a minute just the phenomenon of him from the Jackson five to becoming a solo artist was not just his talent. It was a combination of his talent and the times. And if you, if you watch those early Jackson five videos, um, you can clearly see how much Michael Jackson has and how he stands out above his, his family, at least to me. Uh, and I, I, I don't mean mean it to diss any, you know, his brother, brothers or sisters or anybody. But to me, when you watch him perform as a little kid, he's just magical, As even as a little kid. And uh, then as he became a solo artist, the match of him and Quincy Jones was just incredible. Now, Quincy, people don't know this, but Quincy Jones was doing arrangements for Count Basie. And so when you listen to those Michael Jackson records, as opposed to listening to contemporary stuff that was contemporary to it, Quincy arranged it heavily. There's a lot of stuff going on. There's brass, there's saxophones, there's strings, there's percussion, there's background vocals buried that you barely hear. There's all kinds of stuff going on, but Quincy's uh, genius made it so that it never sounded overly busy. And Michael, it, it was the perfect uh, you know, bowl for Michael to be in. It was just genius. And he had the best, you know, the best writers in L.A., best players. You know, all, all, all my heroes were on those records. So uh, it was just coming together of all the best stuff. It was kind of like the perfect storm of genius 
with Michael Jackson. And the public just, just, you know, loved him from when he was a little kid. I remember when I was growing up in Queens, uh, the day that the ABC record came out, my mom, I, I made her take me to Corvettes in downtown South Jamaica and get the album because it was like a national holiday the day that album came out. Now, what about Prince? Prince. So Prince is a little bit of a different story because he, uh, he did, he was singular, you know? He wasn't, I mean, although he had a team, you know, his engineers and the people that worked with him and his, his band and stuff, but uh, his, it's a different story than Michael Jackson. You know, he was, he was kind of his own guy. And he, you know, a lot of his early records had some pretty risky stuff on it. Not, you know, Michael Jackson was dead center pop. Prince went all kinds of directions. If you listen to his more obscure stuff, uh, he pulls music from everywhere. I mean, there's one track that sounds like Arabic dance music. And then there's another track that sounds like blues and another track that sounds like old you know, doo-wop record, and, you know, he, he pulls from everywhere. Amazingly musical guy. And he played keyboard. I mean, he kind of had that uh, thing that Stevie Wonder had where he could sit down and play so many different instruments. You know, uh, if you listen to his early stuff where it's just him, he, he sounds great on everything. Right, because I can remember before he got signed to Warner Brothers, they originally wanted... Maurice White from Earth, Wind & Fire to be executive producer on the album. And Prince was like, no, I'm self-contained. So I think what they ended up doing was they brought the heads from Warner Brothers down and Prince played for him. And once they saw that he could do everything, they understood what he was doing and that he's self-contained. Yeah, he was self-contained. But he also, uh, I think one of the big differences not in their the the giantness of their stardom, but in how they did things was that Prince really had the vision of everything. You know, like he could do it himself. He knew exactly what he wanted. Michael Jackson really needed that team. He needed Quincy Jones. I mean, later he used Teddy Riley on some stuff, but he really needed that team to do what he did. Prince just did everything. My um my roommate from college, Todd Harriman bought a, it's called a Fairlight, back at around, uh, I would say 1982 or so, there were two digital keyboard systems. One was the Synclavier, that came out of New England Digital, and the other one was Fairlight, which was an Australian synthesizer. They were both unbelievably expensive, like the Synclavier was over $100,000, and the Fairlight was uh, above $70,000. So, it was a massive expense and Prince was using a Fairlight. So um, my, my roommate from college, Todd, we both went to music school together. Uh, he bought one of those Fairlights and toured for a year with Prince. And he said that Prince rarely slept a lot, worked obsessively. Like they would finish a concert. They would have spent the day on the, on the bus traveling gotten done the sound check, changed, come back, done a concert. And Prince would look at the band and say, be in the studio in an hour. 
because he would travel with something to record on. And Todd said that Prince probably had 13, more than 13 albums material that nobody will ever hear. But now, I mean, now that he's gone, maybe they'll start mixing it and releasing it. But he said that at the end of every show, he would record. Yeah. I mean, at the, at the end of every show I did, I wanted to sleep. Right, I can understand that, but I know that they said that at Paisley Park, it was wired for sound where whenever the inspiration struck, he could just record at a moment's notice. And then his engineer, Susan Rogers, was saying he always kind of had a rule of always keep it rolling. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. There's a certain type of, uh, of genius that thinks like that. Like Miles Davis was like that. Like... Uh, he didn't like doing second takes. He was like, whatever it was at that moment, that's what it is. And Prince, Prince kind of had that thing of, you know, let's go with it. At, at least the way I, I interpret it. I, I turned down going on the road with him. They, uh, at, when Todd left, he offered me his job being the synth tech guy. And I didn't take it because it was basically a roadie job. I mean, I could have could have played, but it wasn't a. I'm a player, and I, I just didn't want to take it take a roadie job. Right, and the reason why I mentioned Michael and Prince is because that during the early years of MTV, before those two, there were hardly any urban or at the time black acts on the channel, and Rick James went on several interviews and was saying that there was a lack of airplay by black artists on MTV. And in an interview that David Bowie did, he was grilling Mark Goodman about the lack of black representation on MTV. Now keep in mind, BET was on the air a year prior to MTV's launch. But when I interviewed Nina Blackwood, which you can catch on YouTube and on where you can get this podcast, she was stating how MTV was pretty much built like a AOR rock format, which really didn't include urban artists. But what Walter Yetnikov did was he called MTV and said, unless you play Michael Jackson, I'm yanking everybody off Columbia CBS roster unless he gets played. And that was a great power move. Yeah, you know, I didn't know that. Um, MTV was kind of like the internet is for the music business in the sense that when it started, nobody really knew how it was going to affect things. Um, and MTV, in my opinion, and this is just me, uh, many people may disagree with this uh, statement, but to me, MTV changed our listening audience. Now, B BET started claiming its place, even though it was there before MTV, uh, in terms of uh, an audience, it started claiming its place a little after MTV. But the change from people watching bands with one or two, three cameras shoot, you know, at the same time, to watching produced videos where people aren't actually performing totally changed music forever. Now, I, you know, I mean, you know that I teach and I can tell you that so many students I teach have had almost no 
experience with live music and they don't get that when they watch a video that the people aren't live. You know, they think that that's live. And a lot of people um, don't know that their artists are auto-tuned now. I mean, it's gone, it's gone a step further, but that was the beginning of it. Everything changed when MTV happened. Yeah, because I remember when it first debuted, the industry was still in the mindset of you go buy a record, you go to a concert, you maybe catch an artist on TV when they're performing on Solid Gold, Midnight Special, or if you're really old school, Don Kirshner's rock concert. Yep. And Don Kirshner, for those that don't know, he discovered the monkeys, put them together, and Michael Nesmith from the monkeys, his mom invented liquid paper, AKA whiteout. And he had a show called pop clips, which was the precursor to MTV, which aired on Nickelodeon. And that kind of gave them the idea to say, Hey, let's do MTV. Yeah. I mean, before MTV, there were a couple of things. There were some shows that uh, pushed that way of seeing a band you know, where they were dubbing, dubbing it. Like some of the early, even some of the early Michael uh, Jackson 5 videos were done like that. Um, like the ABC video and those videos. And you can see him, there's a, there's a Bill Cosby show with the Jackson 5. Did you ever see that? Yeah, I think they were doing, it was the homecoming special going back to Indiana where they were playing back to basketball Indiana, right. and um, racing and race cars. Basketball cards, Jones. You know? Yeah. Yes, you're exactly right. And on that, there's, uh, you know, a video of the Jackson 5 singing, but they're not singing live. It's, it's a video. And then the, the same thing was with the Monkees and the Partridge family and groups like that, where they were, you know, not actually performing, but people watched it and thought that they were performing live. And then MTV picked up on that. Right. And then another thing is that when MTV debuted over here in the U.S., most of the videos in their early years catalog came from across the pond in the U.K. because they were already years ahead of us over here with music videos because they were doing this on the regular on the former longest running show on the BBC, Top of the Pops, which is what's like the U.S., their version of American Bandstand. And they weren't paying artists to do those videos. Uh, the artists would be forced to do those videos for free um, because they claimed they were promotional for their albums. Even though they were making money on the videos, uh, it was a big, big scandal. At the, I don't know if scandal is the right word. It was um, frustrating that record companies were able to get people to work for free to make a lot of those videos and claim that they were promotional and not pay people for doing work. Right. And we got to look at, at this time as well, MTV wasn't shown nationwide because cable was still in its infancy and a lot of people still had three, maybe four channels if you're lucky. So you had your regional music video shows or your public access channels that showed videos like I believe it was UHF 68 in New York. Now, Mick Jagger, he was cornered by MTV exec who flew all the way to England 
to get him to do the I want my MTV promo, which was based off of the old I want my Mapo catchphrase. And the MTV exec told Mick, when you don't have no money to offer you, I can give you a buck to do this promo. And Mick did it for a dollar. And that's how they got him to do the I want my MTV promo. They got other artists to do it. And before you knew it, MTV was being spread nationwide and TV sales went up because parents went to go to their local appliance store to go buy a second TV just so that their kids can watch MTV. Well, actually, I would think so that they still had their TV to watch their shows and the kids could leave them alone. Right. You know, so that they, they, could, they didn't have to share the TV. Yeah, you kids now got it so made, we had to suffer through where you had one TV in the house. It was primarily in the living room. And you had a set time for what show you wanted to watch. So if you didn't want to watch it, you were out of luck. Right. And there were only, what, one, two, three, four, five or six channels, mm -hmm. you know, pre-cable. Yeah, five to six channels, but once cable came out, it opened up a whole world of possibilities where there's a channel for everybody. There's a channel for kids. There's a channel for sports. There's a channel for music. There's a channel for shopping 24 hours a day. There's a channel for weather. So that got all these big conglomerates thinking, we could just put a particular type of content to appeal to a certain demographic and we'll be able to get a hold of them because some of the acts that got airplay on MTV also get airplay on BET as well. Like Michael Jackson, Prince, Madonna got early airplay on BET and MTV. George Michael got airplay on both channels and New Kids on yeah. the Block did as well. Yeah, there were some artists that crossed over. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Hall of Notes, especially who I'm finally glad that they got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and their songs, very catchy, very poppy. And they were definitely an early staple during MTV's early years. So tell me the impact about Hall and Notes, uh, Bobby Caldwell, well, and all of those to, acts from record, the Blue So Sound. I got to record with Daryl Hall on one of his solo projects. Um, and now his band are guys that were in my band. Uh, his drummer and his bass player, because they're still active. And I, I love what they're doing. They have a place in upstate New York, and they invite artists up. Like they had uh, CeeLo was up there singing with Daryl, and uh, it's called Daryl's House. And it's, I, I love it. It's, it's a great way to, uh, to promote this stage of their career, you know? And I always, I always thought of them as like very soulful white artists. You know, Daryl Hall, his, his singing style and his writing style was very, I mean, I would imagine he grew up listening to Motown and Stax and all, you know, and uh, a lot of those classic songs because the way he writes is like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with them being from Philly, they were bumping a lot of Philly International Gamble and Huff. Yes. Yeah. Now, speaking of Philly International, that, along with Motown and Stax, dominated not only R&B, but pop. So tell me about the impact you felt that Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff had on the music industry. Oh, huge. 
you know, I got to meet meet them um, when I was on the road with Phyllis Hyman. Uh, they came to something she did, and I got to meet them at at a, at a gig because uh, they they followed Phyllis. Everyone in Philly followed Phyllis. I mean, we used to when we were on the road with Phyllis, we would drive to Philly to get background singers because that was the the singers she liked to use came from Philly for backgrounds. Uh, so the bus would like, let's say we were going to Atlanta, we would we would drive from New York to Philly and pick up the singers and then drive to Atlanta to play. Wow. Um, yeah. One time, oh, can I tell you a bus story? Yes, you can. Um, one time I got on the bus. Now, the way the bus companies were, the tour buses, everybody you've probably seen on TV shows, those tour buses, no seatbelts, no safety precautions anywhere on the bus. Um, the bus companies, maybe for tax reasons, were located in Florida. So the bus driver that was taking us to Atlanta had driven from Florida to New York to get us and then was driving us straight to Atlanta. And I got on the bus and I looked at this guy and he just looked tired to me. Like it scared me a little bit. So I thought to myself, I'm staying awake. I don't care if I can't play and I lose Phyllis's gig. I am, I'm staying awake with this guy. So everybody, um, as the night went on, Phyllis had just recorded a demo of a song with Gordon Chambers that Gordon wrote for her. And Phyllis played it over and over and over. So the band, they were dropping like flies after a while. They didn't want to hear it. They were like, all right, I'm going to bed. And everyone went back to their bunks. And then Phyllis went back to her. Uh, the artists, if, if you ever get to be in a tour bus, the way the buses work is the very back of the bus, there's a room for the main artist. And then there's these little cubbyhole beds for, for the band and the tech, you know, whatever crew you bring with you. So everybody went to bed and I stayed up with the bus driver. Now we drove all night and I was tired. Um, when we got to Atlanta, the sun was just coming up. We were going about 65 miles an hour and we came over a hill. And as soon as we had line of sight over a hill, the traffic was at a dead stop right in front of us. And I looked at the bus driver and he was road hypnotized. He was like, his eyes were open, but he was asleep. And we were gonna plow into those cars and I yelled, look out. And he like woke up and took the bus off the road. And you know, it, you know the bus jumbled around, everybody fell out of their bed. And it took him about 10 car lengths before he could stop the bus on the, on the shoulder going past cars on our right. And the bus, the driver turned around to me and he said, you, you just saved everyone's life. And I was like, thanks a lot, you know, but it was my instinct. You know, I follow my, I always follow my instinct. Yeah. And it saved, it saved my life that time. Yeah. And I was surprised that it didn't have a second driver when you're making that long of a trek because normally you would switch off. Oh, no, they never bring a second driver. I've never seen that. Wow, so you were expected to pull an all-nighter and drive to and from, but he was about to run smack dab into morning Atlanta gridlock. Yep. It was it was a very scary moment. You know, I mean, 
we we could that whole bus of people could have been one of those stories you know you hear on on a on a music show about a whole bus of people you know perishing but we we didn't because i i, I just had a feeling that i should stay up right and i want to circle back to michael for a minute you mentioned okay. some of the people that he worked with on those albums and Rod Temperton, the late Rod Temperton from Heatwave was primarily on those records. And Heatwave was based out of Dayton, Ohio. So tell me about the impact of all those funk bands that came out of Dayton from Heatwave to Slave to Lakeside, Roger and Zap. Uh, I got to play with, with, uh, with Zap, uh, Roger from Zap. Rest in peace, Roger, too. Um, to, to us musicians, it had a different impact, I think, in a way than to people, to listeners, because for us, we would listen to it and copy it. Like we would pick a groove and, and learn how to play it. And on the, you were mentioning about Rod Temperton on Michael Jackson. And for me as a keyboard player, Greg Fillingaines played on a lot of that stuff. And uh, I, I love his playing. Yeah, and wasn't Greg Fillingaines in Stevie Wonder's band, Wonderland? I believe he was. I know that, uh, I remember a long time ago, I read an article about um, Greg really learning his style from Stevie. Mm. Uh, or something like that. There was a, he, he, I remember reading about him being very influenced by Stevie's keyboard style. Mm. Right, And he's a great player. I mean, he went out, I think, on the Control Tour. I think he was the musical director for Janet. Very, very competent and uh, musical keyboard player. I, I got to talk to him. He came into uh, Valerie Simpson's club, and I got to meet him there. Mm. Dope, dope, dope. Now, what I do want to say about Roger, though, is that he along with Stevie, because Stevie used the vocoder early on as well, and also Peter Frampton on Frampton Comes Alive, but when Roger... Wait, go ahead. pause. Peter wasn't using a vocoder. Oh, really? He, yes. Peter used a thing called a Heil, H-E-I-L, talk box. Very weird device. What it had, it had a little speaker in it, and it had a tube that came up from it, and your guitar would go into it, and it would put the sound from the guitar through the tube into your mouth, and then you would sing into the mic. So the shape of your face would make it sound like a talk box. And after a while, they took it off the market because they were afraid of the vibrations uh, from that speaker coming into your head, hurting people. So they took it off the market. But uh, Frampton, Frampton used, it was called a Heil talk box. Sounded a lot like a vocoder. Wow. Um, but very, very different machine than a vocoder. Wow. And that is what we do here at Beyond the Album Cover. We reveal stuff that those of you may not know. See, I'm learning something. The more you know. Now, back to Roger and the vocoder. Roger's okay. vocoder plan. I mean, his stuff has been sampled plenty of times by rap artists, R&B artists. Computer Love will still be getting played until infinity. So what was it about Roger's sound that you think make, makes it so special to where it's still getting played today and it's still widely sampled? You know, um, 
you could talk about technical stuff if you wanted to, but I see it a little differently. I think the things that last are the things that have a certain type of energy. Like Roger Troutman, he, he had a vibe. Like when he did stuff, it had a vibe. And it wasn't just that the sound was new or that he made it his own. It was those things, but it was also the intent of what he was doing. He was, it, it was him. It, like it, that vibe is what survives. That vibe is why people sample things because of the vibe of what they're sampling. You know, it's, uh, it's what makes it last. Mm -hmm. And then we are mentioning the Jackson 5 earlier. There were also other kid groups that were out during the same time as the Jacksons. You had the Ponderosa Twins plus, I think, one or two. They had the track Bound that Kanye West sampled. Then you had the Silvers out of California. Leon Silvers the third bad producer, bad meaning good. And you had, I believe, out of Chicago, the five stair steps. Five stair steps. Yeah. Well, there were a lot of um, a lot of different artists that came out of cities, like you mentioned Philly, and I mentioned in Chicago. When I went to, uh, for your audience, I, my degree from college was in jazz studies. I studied piano. We had to learn classical piano, but my degree itself was jazz studies degree. And one of the things we had to study, if, if I can kind of go off on a little yes, historical for a second. Um, in New Orleans, uh, after the Civil War, it became a central place for musicians. Now, we all know Dixieland came from New Orleans, and that's kind of the birthplace of jazz, if you look at it centrally. But the city of New, or uh, the city of New Orleans closed down Storyville. That was its bar and red light district at one point. And at that point, that affected music deeply because there were all these musicians working in all these places. You know, every time you see something, a movie from old New Orleans, there's somebody playing the piano or a band or something. Uh, so when they closed Storyville, it was like splattering the musicians all over the country. And where did they go? They went to the different cities. Uh, they went to Kansas City, they went to Chicago, they went to New York. They went to the urban centers because that's where the work was for musicians. Now, part of my jazz degree program was at that time, our teacher, David Baker, had us listen to music from each of those cities, and we had to be able to hear a little of it and write which city it was from without us knowing. That was our part of our final exam, was identifying the different blues styles from different cities just based on what we heard. So the things you're saying about Chicago and Philly and New York and even you know the West Coast being kind of uh, cool school, all that stuff has a history that predates rock, predates early R&B, uh, you know, and, and goes back very, very far. Mm -hmm. Now, explain for the audience who may not 
I know they weren't they were young enough, but don't recall the impact of the Beatles appearance on Ed Sullivan. <laughs> well, I mean, we're lucky we had Ed Sullivan because he brought a lot of music. He was somebody who really believed in turning on the United States to new music. When the Beatles got here, again, like the Jackson Five, it was not just their talent or that they were, you know, a, a group of like four cute guys. It was also the time. They came and everyone went nuts over them. Uh, more than more than just about any other band in history, uh, Ed Sullivan playing it uh, skyrocketed them. They just exploded, and you know uh, they played Shea Stadium. And if you listen, if you uh, if you go on YouTube and look up Beatles at Shea Stadium, you can't even hear the band. All you hear is people screaming at the top of their lungs, and uh, it was it was a phenomenon. It right. was a combination of music and the times. Because mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know that a band could generically, you know, organically come up now and have that kind of power and influence like what the Beatles had. Uh-uh. I don't think so. Because like you said, they played Shea Stadium. Everybody was tuning in to their Air Sullivan appearance. And then if you were in the New York area, or depending on where you were, because of the ground swells at night on WABC, they did WA Beatles C, where they did a takeover. I didn't know that. Yeah. And um, so what do you think was the growth of them from when they first debuted over here in the States, where they were doing pop R&B club covers, to Sgt. Pepper's, where it was very experimental, and they had Ravi Sankar on the sitar. It was a complete start to okay, picture. So you, you covered a couple things about them. Um, first, with, uh, with the, the transition, if you listen to the early Beatles, they sound very rockabilly. Uh, they really copied a lot of the rockabilly artists out of the South uh, of the United States and, you know, did a lot of those same songs, you know, Roll Over Beethoven and all, all those kind of things. Very, very early rock. Then they hooked up with George Martin. George Martin, uh, for those of you who don't know, he produced the Beatles. And at the time that he got the job working for the Beatles, he was working on a comedy record for Peter Sellers, but he had been producing classical music. So George Martin started adding elements that nobody had really used. For example, like in Eleanor Rigby, the cellos, you know, it's just, just cellos. There's no drums. There's no, it's just cellos and voice. Or in uh, Penny Lane where they use a piccolo trumpet. Who used a piccolo trumpet in pop music before that? Uh, George Martin brought in all these classical elements. He also brought in classical elements of form. Uh, for those of you who don't know what form is, form is the order of sections in a song. And the tradition of form goes back, the understanding of form goes back to classical music. And you can really trace the growth of the different sections in music way back into the, you know, into the 1700s. Um, but George Martin started doing things with the Beatles that influenced the way people approached songs. They weren't just playing A section, B section, A section, B section. 
the uh, C-section. George Martin started approaching it in a very classical way and making things shorter at the end to keep your interest and change things and did a lot of things that classical composers did for the Beatles. Now, getting to the sitar, um, George Harrison, I don't know a lot about it, but I know that he, the Beatles for a while kind of went on like a, uh, a spiritual quest, you know, and some of it was probably drug induced and some of it was probably trying to figure out why so many millions of people liked them when they barely, you know, felt that way about themselves. So they, they actually uh, went and learned from a Swami and George Harrison got very interested in Indian music. And that, that was really when they started using sitar. And you can follow the lineage of that into R&B even. Um, like for example, um, they started making an electric sitar and that became very popular in R&B like, uh, uh, you know, you are everything and everything. That was a, an electric sitar. And we started hearing sitar in a lot of uh, a lot of R and B records, and I think it was because of the Beatles coming before that that influenced that and made that happen. Mm -hmm. So everybody was listening, everybody paying attention, and kind of taking what was going on, but adding their own spin to it. Yes. Mm -hmm. So Rolling Stone just released their top 500 greatest albums of all time and spoiler alert for those of you that have not read it the number one album that was listed was what's going on by marvin gay now to me that album is a masterpiece but if we look at it barry gordy didn't want to risk the image of clean motown by putting out this what was considered at the time radical album by marvin yeah um Barry Gordy was very, at least my understanding, I can't say this from my experience with him because I don't know him, um, but it seemed like he was very business focused and really a genius at that. And in bringing black music to white audiences, you know, uh, he really made that, that transition happen uh, and got, uh, bridged that gap for, for a lot of white, and he did it, you know, he, he kind of, in many ways, how can I say this? He kind of used musical whiteout on some artists in a way, like uh, with Ray Charles putting, putting these very kind of white sounding background singers with him or adding strings to records instead of say a B3 or an electric guitar. Uh, making a lot of uh, black artists more accessible for white listeners. And he even, you know, like, I, I think the, the biggest example of the success of that is The Temptations and the Supremes and how, uh, how white audiences really loved their music and latched onto it. Mm -hmm. And while Stax, on the other hand, was like, we're not making our music pop. It's going to be raw, authentic R&B, and they're going to cross over to us. And that they did. 
And that's the difference between Stacks and Motown. But it's also why in your listening audience and in the general audience, more people know Motown than know Stacks. I think. Mm -hmm. I definitely agree. I went to Memphis last year and toured the Stacks Museum, and it was great to see all of the relics from the Isaac Hayes car to his Oscar for Shaft. And while both of those labels serve different audiences, they still have an important place within musical history because Motown, to me, is the new great American songbook. Their songs will be played forever to the end of time. Well, Barry Gordy was very wise in using his team of people to listen to songs and choose songs carefully. Uh, it created an A&R tradition that lasted a really long time. Um, I got to speak to Nick Ashford about that. Um, Nick told me about uh, You're All I Need to Get By, you know, song. Let it breathe, people. All right, great, great song. Uh, Nick told me that when they wrote that, uh, and he went to present it. It was the first time he had gone to present a song to, Mo to the Motown Quality Control, um, Quality Control Board without Valerie. It was the first time he went by himself. Valerie couldn't go. And Nick said he was a nervous wreck because right before him was Smokey Robinson, who was like an idol to him. And Smokey played his song and the board rejected it. So Nick was like, really, he said it made him more nervous because he thought, well, you know, if they rejected Smokey, are they going to take our song? You know, and, uh, and Nick said during the whole playing of the song, he, he said he clenched his fist and he closed his eyes. And when the song was done, Barry Gordy was like, well, that's going on the album. And Nick was like, yes, because he said they really, they needed this, you know, to sell the song. And uh, he was so excited about it. But he was a wreck going in front of the quality control board. But you can see by the songs that became hits on Motown and even the B-sides, they were, they went, they were accepted by quality control, Right. Now, a lot of the young songwriters today don't have that experience of, of coming from a, a basis of so many songs, you know. Uh, I think the technology has, has changed that a little bit. It's very easy to make songs, but the singers and songwriters of that time period, before they even got to work as musicians, they had sung hundreds of songs and got to learn which ones worked and which ones didn't in front of an audience. Right, and the one thing that I found cool about during that period was that you also had these little regional record labels all throughout the country where if you had a hot record in, let's say, anywhere USA, if big label records heard it, they're gonna take your regional record 
push it out nationally because we look at some of those records that came out of Florida, either through TK Records or Deep City Records. They were regional hits in and around South Florida, and they exploded nationally. Yeah, and uh, getting getting a record out, a small record, and then getting, it was called a distribution deal, where a smaller label or, a, you know, a small production would get the backing of a larger company was a distribution deal. And that was a big success for artists, for an artist. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned New Orleans. And I want to talk about Master P for a minute for the bus business side of things, because when he created No Limit Records, he went out to California, was selling records out of the trunk of his car. And it soon landed the attention of Priority Records, which gave him an unprecedented deal that has not been heard of before or since in the music industry, where he was allowed to keep 85% of the profits and the record labels 15. And that was a power move that sent shockwaves through the industry. Yeah, because nobody liked giving people money. You know, usually artists were getting ripped off. Mm -hmm. So getting getting to keep that largest of a sum, uh, you're right. It w hadn't happened. Mm -mm. No, not at all. Because he said in the No Limit Chronicles, which aired on BET a while ago, that when he made the independent film about it, he sold two billion VHS copies at ten dollars a pop, and he got to keep all of the profits from tape sales. And that is how That's you. And that is how you become a boss. And that's the one thing that I always appreciated mm -hmm. about Prince, because Prince was preaching independence, do it yourself, know your contracts before it became popular. I mean, who would go on a major award show, scroll the word slave on his face? And he caught heat for it, but in the end, everybody realized that, hey, he was right. Yeah. He he uh, he didn't guard against those kind of being politically correct. He did he did what he did always. Right, and that's the one thing that I appreciated about him. And Michael was very business savvy as well because he knew publishing was where the money was, and he brought the Beatles catalog. And when he did, he used Revolution and the Nike ad. And I think McCartney got a big stink about it, but Michael was like, hey, I, I own the publishing mm -hmm. to your records. Well, you know, I, I'm not 100% clear on this, but I remember reading a long time ago that part of Michael getting the Beatles publishing was being paid, was as payment for ASCAP royalties. But I got to tell you the truth, I'm not 100% sure that because it's so long ago that in my memory that I'm not I'm not really sure, but that's what comes to my mind about that. Right, and tell me about the impact that you feel like shows such as American Bandstand and Soul Train had on the music industry and TV viewing audience. They had a huge huge impact, you know, on bringing music to people because that was where people went to see music. Now. I don't know as much about it. Uh, it's something I, I, you know, is kind of on my list to research, but uh, I did an American Bandstand concert at school and 
one of the black teachers got really upset with me. She said, are you aware of how racist that, uh, that show was? And I really wasn't. So it's kind of something on my list to look up. Um, so just kind of log that in there. But even with that, American Bandstand brought a lot of music to people. And then D Don Cornelius too. I mean, he, that, that was a, like 11 o'clock Saturday morning, you watched Sultry. Everyone watched Sultry. That, right. that was just the best, you know? And, and there was nothing else like that at that time. I mean, now there's like a lot of, uh, a lot of media with black artists in it. But at, for, for your younger viewers, um, at that point in time, there were seven TV channels and none of them were playing black artists. But Don Cornelius on Saturday morning had a show where people came and did the biggest hits of, in R&B. And not only that, but there were any, any of the new dances, you know, that's where you learn how to do the new dances on that. Now, I, don't look at me because I'm about the worst dancer in the world because I'm always on stage playing keyboards anytime anyone's dancing. But uh, that was where people went and watched the new dances that were out. Right. And I know some people that used to dance on Soul Train and they were giving me tidbits of what it was like backstage in the tapings. They were saying that Don was straight business. Don't mess with him. Don't come across him wrong because it hurt your feelings, you know, with him being from Chicago. And that's where the show started. It started as a local show in Chicago. And then he decided to move it out to L.A. so that he could get more access to record labels and acts. And when he moved out to L.A. for the syndication show, they still kept the local show in Chicago going up until, I want to say, maybe a three or four years after the syndicated show launched. But Don Canary is definitely a trailblazer. And like you stated, at that time, you would hardly see any Black artists on TV performing at that time because seeing them on bandstand, you'd be lucky if maybe you get one once a year. But Soul Train allowed Black artists to come on to perform to showcase dance moves, which are still being popularized to this day. And also, for those of you that don't know, Elton John was on Soul Train. I didn't know that. Yeah, Elton John was on Soul Train, Gino Vanilli. Well, you know, uh, let me just say something about Elton John. If you, if you listen to Elton John, just the writing and the piano playing, Elton John was very influenced by gospel piano. His chords, the way he write, writes, is very, very gospel style. I mean, you know, it's white and British, but what he's playing, the chord structure and how he plays the double octave, you know, that, that whole way of playing was very gospel style. Yep, very gospel influenced because when he first made his U.S. performance at the Troubadour out in L.A., it was where... He is about to shake up the world. Him and his longtime songwriter partner, Bernie Taupin, have hits upon hits upon hits. And we'll still be singing Rocket Man, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, I'm Still Standing. We could go down the list of all the hits Elton John has given us over the years. It'll still be played and still be well remembered.
Yeah, for me, you know, just doing what I do, playing keyboards, it always seems to me that the songs that I end up liking the most are written by keyboard players. I mean, my favorite writer of all time is still Stevie Wonder. And uh, Elton John is another great songwriter. Um, Billy Joel is a great songwriter. Uh, I, I love songs written by, by keyboard players. Right. And you mentioned Stevie. Tell me about the impact that I'm going to go with Songs in the Key of Life, which is my favorite Stevie album. That impact that album has had on you, not only as a person, but as a keyboardist. So, um, Stevie had a way of writing melodies. Well, okay. The first thing I should say is just, to me, Stevie is magic. He's like just another level above everybody's writing. Uh, and uh, I, I can't even put into words how much I love Stevie's music uh, and in so many ways uh, because he would perfectly mix, match lyrics and music. Now, not everybody can do that. Like, he would perfectly match words and, and music in a way that hadn't been done. Like, just as an example, the song Creepin', right? That has, let me play something for you. Go ahead. Creep, creepin', this whole sound. It creeps. Before you even say a word, it's already creeping. And then he starts singing about creeping and the, just the words and the music match so perfectly. Um, and so many songs like that, Some, Someone You Love. Stevie was also using jazz, jazz kind of chords that became pop and nobody was doing it. Like someone, you know. was doing things nobody else was doing in pop music mixture of jazz is jazz kind of chords and uh and uh, amazing i mean his early stuff was very motown sounding you know like sign sealed delivered but then later he he just became his own thing and to me nobody's ever even gotten close no, nobody. And I believe another person that came in under Wonderland was the late Bohannon. Yeah. Bohannon, a song for my mother, sampled numerous times in rap. And if you listen to the Tom Tom Club, Jeans of Love, that's who they were referring to when they were saying Bohannon, Bohannon, Bohannon. Yeah. Now, I don't know. I don't know as much about Bohannon as I do about Stevie. I think maybe because uh, just I'm such a huge Stevie fan. Right. Now, you were saying that he was using jazz chords in pop. Now, tell me the impact of Mr. Miles Davis and the legendary jazz label Blue Note. Well, you know, um, this is true, I think, of any genre. A genre exists in a time period, right? 
and it kind of sits there doing the same thing for a little while. And then there's a pioneer that takes it and moves it from what it is to whatever's next. My, my teacher in college used to call it transforming the aesthetic. Miles Davis transformed the aesthetic. He leaped from one time period to the next time period and created, uh, created fusion. You know, fusion really was born, I mean, it kind of happened in a bunch of places at once, but you can really look at Miles Davis and that, I think the Bitches Brew album and, uh, and using that combination of musicians in that post-bebop, you know. So if you, if you follow the history of jazz, uh, you, can start New, you can start before New Orleans, but it, just for the sake of this line of thought, um, New Orleans was Dixieland, and jazz stayed a dance music through the 1940s and part of the 50s where people were doing jazz dance, uh, swing dancing. But in the later part of the 1950s, people started playing bebop. And bebop was not a dance music. It was too fast to dance to. It was a listening music. It was intellectual. It was an art music. It was not a popular music like dance was. And uh, that's what Miles Davis took and took the post bebop, the later bebop, and moved it into the next thing, which was the beginning of jazz rock fusion, combining elements together that hadn't been combined. Mm -hmm. And jazz, for me, I know for some people, it's looked at as an acquired taste, but it's definitely something where I like to put on when I like to meditate or like to get in a zone of where I am comfortable. I had a long, hard day at work. I just want something to just zone out to. And that's how I view jazz. That's for me personally. So for me, uh, having studied jazz and played jazz, there's different eras of jazz that I enjoy different, you know, differently. Um, like, like, right, wait a second. Like just what's on my turntable at the moment is this. Ella Fitzgerald. Right? Now, I met her when, when I was a little kid because my dad loved her. And that was pop. Perfect example, again, of what we were talking about before. Ella was very uh, much, you know, heard by the black audience, but the record companies wanted her to start selling to white audiences and started adding strings and orchestra and making her sound more accessible to white audiences. Same thing happened to Ray Charles same, and the other artists I was talking about before. Um, but getting back to jazz, there's different time periods of jazz and jazz over the course of maybe a hundred years went through the changes that classical music went through over 300 years, the, the uh, evolution of jazz. So for me, it's very uh, hard to say jazz as one thing, because I see it as a whole bunch of things. But I will say this, and this is something I, I'd like uh, your audience to take to heart. If you want to know the history of America from the most interesting perspective, learn jazz history because it really starts with 
uh, the Civil War and music in the Civil War. And jazz is the beginning of American music and combined for the first time in the history of the whole world. It combined the sensibility of African music, which was uh, organic and came from all the slaves that came here, and European music, and European hymns, the, the, the church hymns that became, that combination became the beginnings of gospel and the beginnings of jazz. And uh, even if you look at uh, Cuba, uh, if you look at New Orleans in the, in the um, early 1900s, there were 3,000 Cubans living in New Orleans. And so there's that uh, rhythm. It's a, Cuban, it's a salsa rhythm called clave. It goes like this. And you can kind of hear, you know, like a... But in New Orleans, it did this. Can you hear the, the same, it's the same rhythm as the yeah. Cuban rhythm, which was salsa. So there was that melting pot in New Orleans of all those things. And studying jazz is to really study the history of the country, the history of black music, the history of American music. I mean, you can't learn about music in this country without really studying that that's where to start as mm -hmm. i see it yeah jazz. it's also it's yeah. also as i see it it's also the um the most enjoyable way to study history in this country now because uh enjoyable is a horrible word to use I, I apologize for that it's the most informed way because you can really follow up, follow the influences. I'm sorry about my phone here. Let me shut that off. Um, you can really follow the influences of uh, post-slavery and um, the Reconstruction, and then the Jim Crow era, and you know all all the things that happened affected music, and you can you can look at all those things from a music perspective and begin to understand how those eras affected the growth of music in this country. Yeah, and you, and mentioned, yeah, and you mentioned New Orleans earlier when speaking about jazz. Definitely a very special place when it comes to that. You know, Fats Domino, the Alan Tucson, the Marsalis family, Harry Connick Jr. I mean, that whole region gave us everything from jazz to Zydeco, to New Orleans Bounce, and then later on paved the way for what was to come with Cash Money Records and No Limit. So what do you think makes New Orleans such a melting pot of different musical styles? So, um, it has to do, uh, like I was mentioning about Storyville, but it kind of is before that, um, in New Orleans, uh, how do I say this? In, in Louisiana in the 1890s, the 1880s, in New Orleans, there was a black orchestra that was an all black classical orchestra. And um, now I may take some heat for this, but 
You can look this up and verify that what I'm saying is historically true. There were blacks that were not African blacks that came from the Caribbean. They were known as uh, Creoles of color. And they considered themselves a higher class of black at that time. They were educated, which a lot of the slaves and freed slaves were not. And a lot of them studied classical music, like uh, Scott Joplin, you know, the guy who played, the guy who played you know. Scott Joplin, he was a Creole of color. There was an orchestra of um, mostly Creole black musicians, all black orchestra in New Orleans. And when the city of New Orleans, uh, when, no, I'm sorry, when the state of Louisiana wrote the first segregation law, I think it was 1890, um, the city of New Orleans closed the black orchestra. Uh, and all of a sudden, there were all these trained musicians who had considered themselves more educated than the freed slaves. But all of a sudden, those musicians had to find work. Now, they had been working in this orchestra, which had a great reputation for being a great orchestra. And what happened was really interesting. The Creoles of color, the trained classical black Caribbean musicians started for economic necessity having to mix with the African more self-taught musicians. And that was right at the beginning of jazz was that melting pot of those two traditions. Now you add to that the fact that the, uh, when slaves were, uh, the African slaves in, in African culture, if you go back and study a little bit about how music was there, what a huge part music was in African culture. When they became slaves, they were forbidden from making music. And as everyone knows, when you forbid somebody from doing something, it never works. So uh, the slaves found a way to make music. And, you know, this is the beginning of the blues was singing in the fields and, and what they called field hollers and using traits of African music. Uh, on Sundays, now, we know historically that uh, the religions that the African slaves had back in Africa were forbidden here and that the slave owners worked to convert African slaves to Christianity. So if anyone who's ever been in a church knows, if you look at that prayer, that uh, there's two books. One is a prayer book. One is a book of songs. If you look at the book of songs and kind of flip through it, some of them will have a copyright date. Those are the more modern ones. And some of them will say traditional. And some of those traditional hymns go back to the 1600s. They go back hundreds and hundreds of years. And that mixture of African slaves singing in church, singing European hymns in church is the beginning of gospel. And so there's this real melting pot of, of Africa 
the Caribbean, Cuba, Europe. It's also uh, a combination of European classical music. The early in the early 1900s, there was a, a trumpet player, the guy who preceded Louis Armstrong, named Vic Spiderbeck, went to France. And you know, uh, have you ever seen those paintings where they're just dots like Monet and Manet? Mm. Yeah. So that that time period was called Impressionism, and the classical music at that time was also Impressionist, and Big Spiderbeck, who was a New Orleans jazz trumpet player, went to France at that time and came back writing stuff that sounded like French classical music. So the European classical stuff that was going on, that was very jazz chordy kind of stuff, uh, was influenced by Europe. And all those things melted together in New Orleans. Um, So I I know that was a long answer to your question, but I, I hope I answered your question. New Orleans was where all that stuff melted together. Mm, and just like the tasty dish of gumbo, when you put everything all together, it tastes oh so good. Now, Absolutely. we didn't get a chance, I believe, to talk about this woman in part one. But this woman, when she came onto the scene, around the same time, Michael and Prince was dominating MTV. She had the look. She had the sound, and she had young girls all across America wanting to get named belt buckles and all the lace that you could want. So tell me about the impact Madonna has had on Ah. pop. Because every time when I see Lady Gaga, I think of Madonna. Yeah, there's there's definitely some similarities you can draw. Um, Madonna's first record, was produced by a guy named Jelly Bean Benitez. Jelly Bean was a DJ that came out of the Bronx. And uh, remember that that clave rhythm I was telling you before? The that's that's a Hispan that rhythm has a uh, history in Hispanic music. Um, now all that kind of DJ centered music that started with that Jelly Bean Benitez era comes out of that. Um, now, Madonna, at the time she did her first album, she, she wasn't really a great singer. If you listen to that, she, you know, she got better vocally as time went on. She was kind of, you know, girly and I didn't really love her voice. But those songs like Borderline, uh, that was a, that album was so strong, and Jelly Bean Benitez from being a DJ had a sense of what people liked. DJs, that's one thing they're really good at. They know what works. Just like what I was saying before about Motown, about the song panel of you know people listening to songs, knowing what works. Early singers knowing what songs they can sing in front of people that works. So Jelly Bean had a sense of what works and really created Madonna. Now, uh, you know, she started out, I think, dancing in his dance shows that he used to do, Jelly Bean. But that album was, that that first album uh, with um, Borderline, I forget what else was on it. Borderline, uh, Burning Up, Holiday was on there. Right? Great album. And then she really exploded once she hooked up with Nile Rodgers in Like a Virgin. Yeah. Yeah. 
Madonna, you know, Madonna was one of those like Machiavellian business types that just, you know, she really knew where the center, you know, how to find what was going to sell. And she was very, uh, from what I hear, she was pretty cutthroat about it. I, I met her once. Um, she came in. Uh, do you know who Ron Grant was? Ron Grant, name doesn't ring a bell. Okay, so Ron Grant, more of a local New York singer, and uh, he worked at CBS Sony uh, as the head of A&R for, for black music at Sony, CBS Sony for a while. Um, but Ron also ran an open mic night at the Village Underground on Sundays for a long time. Um, now I lost my train of thought why, why I brought him up. Oh, oh yeah. Ron ran the first big open mic night in New York. It was at a club called Chaz and Wilson's. And the original band that he, <laughs> the original band had five keyboard players. And it was me and uh, Lenny Underwood and Rico Tyler. And Mike Phillips played sax, but he had a synth sax. And uh, Lenny was playing synth bass. And Gary Montutz, who was a gospel piano player. So there were so many keyboard players at that gig that anyone who came in, to sing, if one of us didn't know the song, they had to pick another song. Ron, Ron set it up so that it worked. Madonna came to that, that gig once. I met her there. Wow. Uh, a bunch of people came in. Sheila E. came in and played once at that gig. Wow. It was, it was an interesting gig. But that was the first, you know, open mic nights became more popular after that, which is now what I'm doing for now 19 years at Asher and Simpsons Club. But it started with Ron Grant at Chaz and Wilson's. And then when Debbie changed the name, it became just Wilson's on wow. 79th Street. Wow. And also at this same time, this person was in a little funk band that you all know as the Commodores with hits such as Zoom, Brick House, Machine Gun, Bop. But once he went solo, he was just as big of a pop star, Lionel Richie. And that Can't Slow Down album, Perfection. Can't Slow Down album is just a work of art. Um, I mean, I like the old Commodore stuff a lot. I met Lionel Richie at uh, Sam Ash once in the keyboard department. Yeah, I'm talking like 1970s, a long time ago. Um, but that Can't Slow Down album, what an amazing album. All so many hits, and Steve Lukather plays guitar on it. So many. There was one song on that album that uh, didn't become a hit that I wish had um, that David Foster wrote. I think it was called The Only One. Do you know that song? Um, believe so. You said it was an album cut that didn't really turn into a hit, right? sound very similar to Hard to Say I'm Sorry by Chicago. I don't know way. if if, uh, if, um, if if David Foster wrote that one. David Foster wrote a bunch of Chicago's hit, like You're the Inspiration. He wrote um, Through the Fire for Shaka. Um, David Foster, he, he produced um, Barbara Streisand's Broadway album. A brilliant, brilliant 
writer and guy. Um, but that song, never the, the one I was just playing, uh, that song was on that Can't Slow Down album and never made it as a hit. And it's just the most beautiful song. I, I love, nobody sings it, it's, but I, I love that song. Oh, man. And I want to get you out of here on this one person. He was originally behind the band playing drums in a little band called Genesis. And then, yes, you took the words right out of my mouth. I I saw Phil Collins on his first solo album tour. Um, I never got to see him with Genesis. And, you know, he he replaced Peter Gabriel in Genesis. Um, But I saw him on his album tour at the Palladium on 14th Street in New York. And he was, he was great in concert. I, I was so, uh, like, I thought he would just kind of sit behind the drums and sing, but he brought Chester Thompson, who played drums, and when they both played, they both played exactly the same thing, and it was incredible. But then when Phil Collins got up front and sang, uh, Chester played drums, and Phyllis kind of, uh, 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 Phil Collins fronted the band. And a very, very talented guy. Mm-hmm. But again, very, very British classically trained. Kind of like if you listen to his writing, you can tell he, he, he's, he has some, some knowledge. Like he's, he's learned some chord theory and uh, very, very British rock sounding to me. Right, the Face Value album and No Jacket Required, my favorite Phil Collins album. And on No Jacket Required, I was looking through the liner notes and I saw that David Frank from the system did some sim programming on that oh, he album. Did the, uh, he did that, uh, was it Sue Studio? Yeah. Right? Sue Studio, yeah. I think that was it. And for those who don't know, Sue Studio, Phil Collins said that he was inspired by Prince's 1999 for that record. Yeah. thought I had a synth in there. Yeah, the, the bass line. You probably can't. You probably got to play it up high for you to hear it. Yeah, I can hear it. That kind of very, you know, bup, 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 very computery sounding bass line. That was Mike Frank's thing at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, Susudia was like that. Right, and the system, go check out their albums, Don't Disturb This Groove, The Pleasure Seekers, and my throwback interview online with Mick Murphy from the system, which I will be re-upping on Beyond the Album Cover, so definitely stay tuned for that. So before we conclude, Alec, do you have any shout-outs you want to give? Um, well, I definitely want to shout-out my kids. I have three great kids, and they're just amazing people. Um, who else would I want to shout out? I want to shout out Valerie Simpson. Val- Valerie's had kind of a tough month, and, and uh, I owe Valerie so much. Uh, working for her has been like studying with the most amazing person there is. She's just an incredible person, and uh, I, owe, I owe her so much. And so many people, she she helps so many people and people really, really love her. And she, she had a hard month and Valerie is just an amazing, amazing 
person. So my shout out is to Valerie. One last shout out. I got a shout out, Dr. Nason. Thank you for hooking me up. Because uh, without him, I, I wouldn't have met you. So yeah, shout out to Dr. Nason, which you can listen to on wherever you get your podcast, Beyond the Album Cover Search. Now I'm going to ask you to do something for me, Alex, something that I've always wanted to do, but I've never had a chance to. Can you play me out an intro? Do you happen to know um, Peg by Steely Dan? Yeah, give me a second. Let me get the piano back up. Yeah, so uh, we're going to uh, do it really proper. Uh, we're going to uh, do an outro with Mr. Uh, Alex Chances on the keys. So you're talking about... You got it. Let it breathe for a minute. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, go ahead and play it. All right, y'all. Just want to say thank you for tuning in to your boy on Beyond the Album Cover. You can catch this interview along with other archival interviews wherever you get your podcasts. Amazon, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher. Just like and follow. And video is available on YouTube at youtube.com slash J5. That's lowercase J85. Ladies and gentlemen, give a big virtual jazz hands round of applause to Mr. Alex Sanchez on Beyond the Album Covers with your boy, Alex. Thank you very much for coming on and doing this interview. Thank <laughs> you.